Welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. It's great to be with you today. Uh, we're going to have an interesting conversation today about uh, the things that uh, uh, President Miller continues to do in the White House uh, to try to deliver on the uh, Trump promises to destroy legal immigration to America. Um, but yesterday, the Trump administration came out on Monday, April 22nd, uh, with a, uh, I would call it a memo, um, uh, calling, I mean, it's not really an executive order, I guess, but more of a memo to the Department of Homeland Security uh, to, quote, immediately begin taking all appropriate actions that are within the scope of their respective authorities to reduce overstay rates for all classes of non-immigrant visas. Now, Let's be clear. This is this is something that the uh, that the federal government has been concerned about for decades, um, and we know that somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, 45, 55 percent of the people that are currently undocumented in America came through uh, the uh, legal immigration system. That is, they came on visas. Uh, a big chunk of them coming on. Um, uh, on the uh, on the visitor visa or even the visa waiver, so we have all these visa overstays. Now, last year the white uh, the DHS said that there were some sort of you know crazy number like a million people that overstayed their visas. Clearly, that's not the case. Um, that's just a question of really poor tracking. But for decades, the government has been very interested and very concerned about these overstays. So much so in 1996 uh, that Congress created. Um, the, uh, the, the exit entry or the entry exit control system. In section uh, uh, 110 of, the, uh, of IRA-IRA, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Control Act, um, the folks in Congress back in the day said this, that not later than two days after the date of the enactment of this act, I'm sorry, two years, <laughs> not, not more than two years after the date of enactment of this act, the Attorney General, and at the time, the Attorney General controlled all of immigration, shall develop an automated entry and exit control system that will, one, collect a record of departure for every alien departing the United States and match the records of departure with the record of the alien's arrival in the United States. Now, this is not pre-Internet days. I mean, they had computers that could do this back in the day. The government just didn't own a lot of them. Um, so two years. So by, by September of 1998, the Attorney General, the INS, was supposed to be matching up departure records. This is the little white card that we used to get. people used to get in their passports called I-94 card, to match that up with the original I-94 card, which at the time when you entered the country was actually a three-piece form, and the government kept two pieces, and you kept a piece that was stapled in your passport. Um, they were going to match those two up, and somehow they were going to do that by computers. They didn't really give any specific detail. Uh, they just wrote, you got to do this within two years. Um, and uh, one, so we'll do that. And two, enable the Attorney General to identify through online searching procedures. I love how they call it, online searching procedures lawfully admitted non-immigrants who remain in the United States beyond the period authorized by the general. So this is actually really a simple idea. The simple idea was uh, we're going to know who didn't leave because we didn't match their departure record with their entry records. We will know exactly how many people 
have left and come back in. Now, presumably in 2019 or 2018, uh, we can tell uh, how many people. There would be there'd be the record of um, of entries and a record of departures, and the government would be able to tell us uh, exactly how many um, people there were in that number. Uh, so in the fiscal year 2017 uh, entry exit overstay report, um, here is uh, what they say. This was, uh, this was, of course, prepared by uh, Kirsten Nielsen uh, and her folks there. Um, and they said the total overstay rates, this is what they said, DHS has determined that there were 52,656,022 what they call in-scope non-immigrant admission. I said, presumably that means people that came into the country legally. Through air or sea ports of entry, so not including land, because land is where many, 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 many more people come in, uh, with expected departures occurring in, 27, occurring in 2017. Um, this calculated a total overstay rate of 1.33%, or 701,900 overstay events. Now, what's interesting about this is how did they calculate this? Um, how, how do they know what this number was? Um, and they don't know if the people ultimately left, what percentage of them ultimately left, but left late. Um, overstay rates for visa waiver countries was 0.51% of 22 million expected departures. That means somewhere in the neighborhood of a 100,000 people overstayed from visa waiver countries, according to, to their submission. But here's what they put. For non-visa waiver countries, fiscal year 2017 suspected the in-country overstay rate is 1.91% of 14 million expected overstays. Why would they use the word suspected? If back in 1996... Congress had dictated to the then INS, now uh, uh, CBP, how many people overstayed their visas. They don't, did they account for changes of status? Did they account for adjustments of status? Uh, did they account for, hey, I left a different way than I came in. I left through the port of entry um, uh, at, at, a, at the border but came in through the airport. Uh, this, is, this is why the system appears to be Problematic. Now, go on further on this on this uh, 1996 law, which is federal law, by the way. Not later than December 31 of each year, following the development of the system under subsection A, the Attorney General shall submit an annual report to committees of Judiciary and House and the Senate. The report the following: the number of departure records collected, with an accounting by country of nationality of the departing alien. B, the number of departure records that was successfully matched to the records of the aliens prior arrival in the United States with an accounting by the aliens' country of nationality and by the aliens' classification as an immigrant or non-immigrant. And C, the number of aliens who arrived under the visa waiver program. Now, here's what they're supposed to do with that. The use of this information. Information regarding aliens who have remained in the United States beyond their authorized period of stay identified through the system shall be integrated into the appropriate databases of the INS and Department of State, including those using ports of entries and consular officers. So we know that they are, in fact, updating that database. What we don't know is what is the visa rate of overstay by country. Um, and um, the, uh, the 2017 report on this is really kind of interesting because it does give us uh, a, the visa waiver overstay rate, 
I'll give you a great example. The country of Andorra had 1,372 people that came in under the visa waiver overstay. Um, and six overstayed their visa uh, for a record of 0.44%. Uh, Australians, uh, Australians, over 5,300 Australians out of 1.4 million Australians overstayed their visas. And going on down Brunei, you have to say, why does Brunei have a visa overstay? They have 14 visa overstays from Brunei. But what they're not telling you is how many of them actually... Um, Adjusted status, because as a visa as a visa waiver program, you can adjust your status to permanent residence through marriage. Um, interesting numbers. Uh, now, on the non-visa waiver countries, uh, I'll give you a great example. Afghanistan was at ten percent visa overstay of their visas. Uh, Angola was at ten percent. Uh, Argentina was uh, actually probably due to be put back into the visa waiver program. They're at point six eight percent. Uh, we've got uh, people overstaying from, uh, let's see, the biggest visa overstays uh, is Chad. Right, no surprise there. Um, 25% visa overstay rate from Chad, which is only a few thousand of them. Djibouti had a 42% visa overstay rate. 1,000 uh, people come in, and only uh, 577 left the United States. Now, isn't that an interesting number? Uh, Ethiopia had a 23% overstay rate in the United States. Um, let's take a look in 2017 what Venezuela looked like. Venezuela only had a 5% overstay rate in 2017. It'll be interesting to see what these numbers look like in uh, in 28 fiscal year 2018. Um, but you know it's interesting. Or 20, fiscal year 2019, uh, and to see uh, if we're seeing a greater number of beats overstays. But this this is Trump now dictating uh, what the, this new policy. Um, um, will be um, uh, from from the White House. So they're going to give, Trump is giving the heads of his agencies um, for um, uh, a little, just a short period of time in order to combat, and here's what they wrote, combating the high non-immigrant overstay rates. Now, I've just been telling you the overstay rates, generally speaking, are less than 1% for the vast majority of countries. So here's what he wants to do. Uh, we are committed to securing the borders, and keep in mind, these, these reports are from land and sea ports of entry, um, not, from, um, uh, not from, uh, from, from air and sea, not from land. Um, and uh, it is, um, this, I mean, it, it would, because of the amount of traffic that comes in through so many of the ports of entry, uh, we don't really track people when they come in. I mean, I, they're supposed to swipe their passports, but so many of them don't. Um, and um, take a look at this here. My administration community is securing the border. Visa overstates are unacceptably high for nationals of certain countries. Um, they said you gotta, and, and again, nobody should be overstating their visas. We get how that works. But if they're changing status, we're not sure whether CIS is reflecting that. Um, so they hate the visa waiver program. Just know that the large number of aliens who overstay the period of authorization, failing to apply the terms of visa waiver program, place significant strain on the DOJ and and Homeland Security resources. Actually, it doesn't put any strain on it because there don't appear to be anything about it. Uh, so the Secretary of State shall engage with governments of countries with a total overstay rate of greater than ten percent 
in the combined B1 and B2 non-immigrant visa categories of fiscal year 2018 overstay report. Uh, now, we've already uh, talked about that fiscal year 2017 overstay report uh, and what that means. Uh, so how many of these particular countries actually have, um, have something to worry about here? Um, Let's take a look at, at the 2018 uh, fiscal year overstay report to see which countries uh, are actually uh, going to be causing, uh, going to be receiving a letter uh, from uh, from the from the Department of State uh, to engage their countrymen in overstaying their visas. So the fiscal year 2018 overstay report says the following countries have. Uh, a, a greater than 10% combined B1, B2 uh, overstay rate uh, for, uh, for their nationals. Now, it's interesting to see, um, I'm going to imagine without looking at the report first, that we're going to see Venezuela on the report, right? Uh, is Venezuela going to be on the report? Now, none of the visa waiver countries, by the way, the highest visa overstay rate is Lithuanians, um, oddly enough. Uh, Chileans, about 1.49%. So Chile looks like uh, uh, Portuguese, 1.8%, and that's it. Everybody else is below 1%. So let's take a look at countries above 10%. Afghanistan, they only give out 1,300 visas there a year. Angola, 15%. Uh, Bhutan, third, there's only 400 people who got visas in the whole country, 13%. 52 overstayed their visas. Uh, Burundi, hmm, 21% visa overstay rate, but there's only 1,100 Burundians with visas. Cape Verde, Cabo Verde, um, they had uh, 11%, so they're going to they're going to get a visit. Chad, 30%, but only had 536 people actually get visas in another country. Djibouti, 44%, but only 400 people got visas that year. I'm going to imagine it's going to get a lot harder to get visa from these people from these countries from now on. Eritrea had a 26% overstay rate, but only about 2,000 people a year. The government, uh, the country of Georgia, had a 10% overstay rate. That's not that surprising, given the, given the problems that our friend Vlad has been has been pursuing over there against our against the, the people of that country. Um, next, Laos, 10.01%, 151 overstays, but only 1,500 people got visas, so not not a huge number. Liberia, 13% overstay rate, but again, only about 3,300 got visas. Um, Micronesia, a 10% overstay rate. Six people, because only 60 people got visas from Micronesia on a B1, B2. Uh, most Micronesians come on work visas. Nigeria had a 15% overstay rate. Okay, that's the, that's the big boy so far, 29,000 overstays. Um, we've got uh, Somalia, 10 overstays, a rate of 12%, because uh, 78 people got visas from Somalia. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, South Sudan, we had a 15% overstay rate. It was 36 people probably all claiming asylum in the United States. No surprise. Sudan, 13%. Um, we've got Syria with a 17% overrate. Again, 1,200 people. Many of them probably claimed asylum in the United States. Uh, Venezuela, oddly enough, only had a 7% overstay rate, but that meant 35,000 was the most people that overstayed their visa from any one country would be Venezuela, the country that Trump is trying to help overthrow the government of. Uh, so what is he going to do? So the engage So what does Trump really want to do here? What is he making happen as part of this? Um, 
Well, he wants individuals uh, who overstay their visas, of course, to be deported. But he's charging in his memo, he's charging the Secretary of State with uh, the obligation to figure out why they're overstaying and how to fix it. 120 days, and look, you're going to suspend using 212F, that provision that he won in the Supreme Court to keep Muslims out of the country, suspend their entry. Um, you're going to target suspend people, like certain types of people, maybe by race or religion from those countries. Um, you want to limit the duration of status, duration of admission to the United States. That's that's something they could do. Uh, he also put in there that you could actually uh, create a bond provision, make people pay a bond to come into the country. Um, now, what's one thing that all these countries have in common that, that are over 10%? Well, except for the Different Nigeria, which you could arguably say is the case there, these countries are in political crisis, economic crisis, or if not flat-out war. And if they're in flat-out war, you know, one, it gets hard to get a visa. That's why the numbers are so low, except for countries like Nigeria and Venezuela. Uh, but more importantly, uh, it means it's impossible, almost impossible to get these visas. And if you do get them, you're going to get out there with your life. The Venezuelan numbers is obviously telling. I mean, 30,000 Venezuelans have, have probably entered the country uh, with the visa, overstayed, and probably applied for asylum. And again, this, is, this, this report is a piece of information, but not all of the information you need to actually understand what is going on uh, as part of this process. So we'll keep our nose to the grindstone and our ear to the pavement here um, and to see what the Trump administration ultimately does with their new policy program, but I can imagine it's probably going to be bad. We'll be back in just a minute on the Immigration Now with some more information about immigration. You know, we don't have commercials uh, right now on the Immigration Now. You're probably grateful for that. Um, but uh, I would note that if you have any questions about immigration or you have any issues you'd like to ask about, or, heck, you'd like to be a guest on or comment on the Immigration Hour, uh, you can reach me at chuck at immigration.net. We'd be happy to talk to you about, the, about those issues. Uh, the next topic today is the census. Uh, you know, immigration touches so many parts of, of our society. Uh, and right now, one of those hot topics is the census. Uh, Wilbur Ross, after he got done lying to Congress uh, and got caught for lying to Congress, um, it, and but yet he's still in office, uh, put on supposedly urged the putting on uh, of the uh, to the uh, census a question about citizenship. Now I can I will go back and and I really get to genealogy, uh, working on ancestry and my heritage and family search. And I, I love going back to the census records and seeing um, all the questions they used to ask, uh, including your country of birth. They would ask that. Now, that was no big deal back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, going back to the 1870s. They routinely asked that question. But we stopped asking that question a few census ago uh, because the idea was that if you asked, you were here to count the number of people. The Constitution just says a decennial count of the population. It doesn't say count everybody that's a citizen, doesn't say count everybody's a permanent resident. And the idea was, because our society is perhaps more sensitive today than it was back in the 1870s or the 1940s, uh, that people might simply not want to respond to the census uh, if, they, if they're going to have to disclose that they're not a citizen of the United States. So it's not only the country of birth, but their country, of, whether they're a citizen. Now, uh, the most recent census that I have worked with, the 1940 census, doesn't ask about citizenship. It asks about country of birth. 
Um, and um, so now, now the Department of Commerce under Wilbur Ross and, and, and uh, DJT want to put onto uh, the, uh, uh, the census this question, and the courts have now ruled on it such that uh, the, the question is if prohibited, and that question is now before the Supreme Court. And over 50 individuals, organizations, and municipalities have taken sides in the case. Um, you know, that's about with one downside to being a Supreme Court clerk. You've got to read so much of this dribble that comes in from, uh, from so many different people. Uh, so lots of different amicus briefs in the case. Um, some arguing that the citizenship question was justified in supplementing enforcement efforts under the Voting Rights Act. That's just crap, by the way. Um, and uh, others uh, arguing that the agency decision-making procedures outlined in the APA were perfectly fine. Others have claimed that the citizenship question would depress response rates among non-citizen and Hispanic communities, leading to the reduction in their federal funding and representation in Congress. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I mean, the, the, you, you could argue that the last census was a definite undercount of the Latino population in America. Uh, it likely cost Georgia, for example, a seat in Congress. Uh, likely cost Utah a seat in Congress. Uh, it would have taken seats away from states like New York uh, or maybe even Texas. Um, uh, so here's the question. Uh, and this is, again, this isn't terrible because it's become, a, it's become a Democrat, Republican issue again, which, is, you know, you always hate those things. Why, why can't we really look at this and say, what is the best way here? But this is why the Supreme Court exists. So the House of Representatives and the, Dem, the Democratic House of Representatives penned a brief earlier this month which urged the court to uh, strike down the census question. Say, you know what, the district court affirmed, said it's no good, the court of appeals said it's no good, and now the federal the Supreme Court should do something. They claim that their interest as congressmen or as the Congress um, is the apportionment of House representatives as well as hundreds of billions of dollars that they enact are doled out, and they assert that the Department of Commerce violated Congress's authority and, uh, and obligations under the Constitution Enumeration Clause which requires us to conduct an actual enumeration of the U.S. population. Uh, I like this quote. In attempting to add a question about citizenship status, as opposed to just country of birth, to the 2020 census outside the agency's ordinary process, again, it didn't go through the APA, um, and against the undisputed evidence that doing so would undermine the most basic purpose of the decennial census, the department has disregarded the Census Act's requirements and limitations. Okay, well, they are, they are the Congress. They did write the law. You think what they meant would be important. They're joined by a number of local governments uh, and uh, th that want the county to do. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, uh, of course, defending Wilbur, um, didn't he own Hardee's? Isn't that where he comes from? Uh, the, the RNC filed a brief supporting the decision, arguing that when, this is, and this is actually, when you think about the irony of the RNC, quote, defending the Voting Rights Act, that that's like, wow, really? So why are you trying to disenfranchise all these African-American voters? Just, just curious, just asking. Somebody wants to know. Um, arguing that it would improve the DOJ's ability to enforce the Voting Rights Act. By how exactly? Um, they say by only granular block-level data on citizenship would allow the Department of Justice to accurately measure minority voting power through a metric called citing voting age population, it said. Except, you know, you don't know who moves into that area afterwards. You don't know whether they become citizens so they might start as a permanent resident, become a citizen before the election uh, and after the census. 
they said the lower court had in striking down the question issued rulings premise on discounting Wilbur Ross's determination that citizenship data is necessary for the DOG's Voting Rights Act enforcement. You know why they discounted that? Because Wilbur Ross did not think of that. He doesn't think that deeply. Uh, they're joined by 17 states, shockingly, all controlled by Republicans, uh, in enforcing that question. Um, now, the, ad, the agenda, what are the, what are the agendas here? So places like uh, the Federation for American Immigration Forum, the Immigration Law Forum, you know, the anti-immigration groups out there, uh, uh, non-profits that advocate for restricting immigration, let's just call them nativist groups, um, they wrote a brief saying that the APA mandates that the high court overturn the block on citizenship question. The court should not be able to vacate agencies on, as arbitrary and commission on the APA, the APA, for which the agency has worked to a sufficiently reasonable basis. Um, interesting. But other nonprofits like the NAACP, uh, the Central Valley Immigration Integration Collaborative, and Latino Justice argue um, that uh, it would not only lead to inequitable political representation uh, as because of misallocation of federal funds, but diminish the importance of immigrants and fail to account for the actual and accurate complete count of a diverse American nation. Um, so we'll see what our friends at the Supreme Court, they're, they're going to have to hear this case soon. Uh, I don't know if it's set for hearing, but they got to do the census in 2020, and then they got to get geared up now. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what ends up happening um, uh, to see if uh, Supreme Court goes with Trump or whether they go with reality uh, and um, decides uh, who, who should get counted here. You know, it's interesting. If you look back historically about who should get counted in the census, um, or I guess arguments are today. Oh my goodness, I wasn't paying attention. Or arguments are today in the Supreme Court on this. Uh, and by the way, this is not the first dispute over who gets counted in the census. Uh, this is from Law 360. Had a good article on this. The census has raised questions since its inception in 1990 when Jefferson questioned results totaling 3.9 million people. Over the uh, and both both President Washington and Secretary Jefferson questioned the results. Over the ensuing decades, the decennial tally has been administered by U.S. Marshals and civil servants, and the questionnaire has grown and shrunk and split in two. Every change has been contentious because the final count determines how congressional districts are drawn and how much funding they will get for the next 10 years. So we're looking at the timeline of sensitive citizenship questions. Um, the very first count of all the inhabitants of the 13 states, as well as land that would later become Kentucky, Maine, Vermont, and Tennessee, divided people into five demographic categories. Free white men older than 16, free white men under 16, free white women, free people of color, uh, and slaves. Slaves made up of a third of the southern population, but they were disenfranchised. Under the three-fifths compromise reached at the Constitutional Convention, every five slaves would count as three people for purposes of carving out congressional districts. Now, We've got in 1820. Citizenship question is added to the census uh, questionnaire for the first time. It appears again in 1830, then disappears for several decades. It reappears in 1870, but only as applies to white men over the age of 21. In 1890, the citizenship question is reintroduced for all respondents as part of an effort in 1890 to broaden the scope of the census, which also introduced new possible answers for the question on race, including categories for Japanese, Chinese, and various items for biracial people. In 1910, uh, the Census Bureau landed in the Department of Commerce, added a geography and statisticians, and also added a question about the origins and mother tongue of immigrant residents. That's why I see my 
German on a lot of these censuses from my relatives when they came in. Uh, in 1960, this year, the only census form is administered in New York, Puerto Rico, asked about citizenship. Interesting. Okay. In 1970, the Census Bureau issues begin to show a short form asking five questions relationship to the head of household, age, sex, race, and marital status. This was sent to all households. I actually remember this. There was also a long form which included questions on citizenship sent to 20% of all households for the next three decades. Uh, judges said in 1980 um, that um, a, uh, and again, this is part of FAIR, the Federation for Migration Reform, a group seeking to reduce immigration, sued the Department of Commerce, alleging that without a nationwide citizenship question, a large but presently unassertainable number of illegal aliens who will influence representation in Congress. The federal court threw out the case for lack of standing, finding there was no evidence of harm to the plaintiffs, um, who could do more than speculate as to which states might gain and which might lose representation. In 87, the New York uh, sued the federal governor under old mayor, Governor Cuomo, alleging it would lose a congressional seat thanks to a large undercount that affected the black and Latino populations. Um, he lost that, lo- that lawsuit as well. In 1999, the high court tossed out statistical samples, finds that the Census Bureau can't use statistical sampling to cut down on the cost and adjust its demographic findings. That sampling method, which Clinton used, was meant to compensate for an undercount that was disproportionately affected millions of people. Newt Gingrich sued, and he lost because he won on the issue of actual enumeration. Now, think about that. He wanted an actual enumeration. Clinton did estimations, and now we want an actual enumeration. And Republicans are now fighting against it? Interesting how you find yourself on both this process. In 2010, the last sentence, this is the year the decisions did away with the long form and with it the citizenship question. The short form asking only 10 questions was the only questionnaire used. Um, in 2018, the Trump administration said, hey, we're going to put this question on there. And it's follows. Is this person a citizen of the United States? Yes, born in the U.S. Yes, born in Puerto Rico, Guam, USVI, or Northern Marianas. Yes, born abroad of U.S.'s parents. Or yes, citizen by naturalization, print year of naturalization. No, not a U.S. citizen. That's the question they want to put on the form. Uh, we're going to see what the Supreme Court probably decides here in the next month or two, certainly by the end of June, and see whether or not the citizenship question will be on the form. We'll take a break here on the Immigration Now on America's Web Ready. We'll be right back with our next topic. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Okay, if you have any questions, email me at chuck at immigration.net. Always happy to talk to you by email. And, of course, if you ever want to be on the show, just let me know. We'd love to have a guest here on the Immigration Hour. We need to get one set up here shortly. Uh, see if I can get my friend Marty Rosenbluth back on the phone. All right, so I want to talk briefly today a little bit further about these detention centers um, that apparently are nearly empty. Now, I have a lot of friends that have served in Dilly, the Dilly Detention Center in Texas, and those that work um, very closely with those that are in Berks in Pennsylvania. And an interesting article came out from The Guardian. The Guardian, by the way, does remarkable work at theguardian.com online. Um, and there's an excellent article by Amanda Hopuch um, about the nearly empty detention facilities for, family, for women and children in Dilly and in Berks County in Pennsylvania. Uh, the Dilly facility, she reports, is at 26% of capacity. And the Berks County facility is only at 19% of capacity. Um, on April 1, the third family shelter was temporarily changed to a facility for adult women only. Now, you have to wonder, if there's such a crisis at the border, is this a crisis of their own making? 
um, Michelle Brené, Director of the Immigrant Rights and Justice Program at Women's Refugee Commission, said this, quote, I think that the people making policy decisions don't want the system to work. They want to create chaos, close quote. She said the crowds at the border were due to a collision of the crisis in Central America, which has been brewing for years, and the Trump administration's own restrictive immigration policies. Quote, she said, you could go through all the policies since they've come in, and they've all been about undermining or destroying the system we have in place for processing and screening people. So here we are, said Brene. Uh, she's absolutely right. I mean, we've been talking on our on the Immigration Hour for now for over two years about the Trump administration's intentional policy to create chaos and create crisis because he believes that only through crisis can his crazy policies make sense to anybody. So because there was no crisis in place when he started, he had to actually create the crisis. That's part of it. One um, of these policies, we've talked about it before, metering, how many people are allowed to request asylum at legal ports of entry each day, which created backlogs of thousands of people at the largest border towns. These long waits have been also driven people to cross the U.S. border with Mexico outside of ports of entry, hoping to encounter an agent who must consider their asylum request. So literally, they come in, they cross the river, cross the border, jump the fence, and just sit down and wait, because they know the border patrol is going to come by. There are sensors all over that border. They, they're told that, so they sit down and wait. Um, the empty shelters are part of a government narrative that it must catch and release people because Congress won't change laws. Well, the reality is, and I, I hate detention centers, but they don't have to catch more people. They can actually hold people in detention centers. They can. They're choosing to release people because they want to create a crisis. So the policies swing from one extreme, overcrowded detention centers for families, women, and children, to empty facilities because um, we have to release them, and cash release is horrible. Um, and uh, ICE, which oversees detention, said, quote, limited transportation resources and budget restrictions were largely responsible for the vacancy and family detention centers. ICE declined to specify what transportation were needed, what transportation changes were needed, but suggested it did not have the resources available to move people from a nearly 2,000-mile border to detention centers in Texas and Philadelphia. Hmm. So ICE's limited transportation resources would be quickly depleted if the agency undertook an effort to route all fa families with unaccompanied minors and children to one of the two family residential centers in Texas. Hmm. Interesting. Um, now, the agency also said, ICE said, they are troubled by a rule which prohibits family and children from being held in detention more than 20 days. That's the, that's the Florida settlement, and you agreed to that. Um, and that rule's not going to get undone. The court's not going to let that go by. Uh, so I, I, would, I would encourage you to read... Um, this article in The Guardian by Amanda Holbuch, um, I thought it was uh, a fascinating light being shined on, uh, on the intentional creation of chaos. Uh, intentional creation of chaos. And when they have intentional creation of chaos, uh, they are able to um, uh, uh, try to sell the American public that we're being invaded. Uh, and, and we're being overtaken, and we are all going to die as part of this. Um, and um, so, you know, let's take it from there. I, I, I do want to um, talk about the things that Miller has done uh, as part of this. Um, and uh, uh, Stephen Miller is now a senior advisor, because I guess he's 33 now. I'll make him a senior. Um, he drafted the cruel policy that separated 3,000 families at the border and placed children in cages. He did that. He argued it would be a deterrent when, in fact, it actually increased the asylum of families coming. 
Um, Miller uh, forced Trump, he really did, to end DACA, because I'm not clear if Trump really wanted to end the DACA ultimately. Um, Miller wrote the Muslim ban um, uh, as part of that. But that's the thing Stephen Miller has done. And all these things are causing um, the idea that we have an immigration problem, when in fact we have an immigration enforcement chaos program is what we have. Um, and as a result, if chaos is continuing, if chaos continues to be the modus operandi of how our immigration uh, states uh, continues, then what we're going to do is Trump believes he'll be able to get Congress to overturn the law and make the laws even worse than they currently are. And when you think about this chaos that's created, one way he, he wanted to use the chaos to his advantage was to argue, hey, we're going to bring all these immigrants at the border to sanctuary cities. Remember that? Over, over, you know, oddly enough, over Easter, right? Uh, we're going to bring all these people to these sanctuary cities. Well, here's an interesting factoid. The majority of new family immigration court cases already are in sanctuary cities, if that's what you want to use the term as. Sanctuary cities are simply constitutional cities, cities that recognize the Constitution and say, look, you can't detain people without a warrant. That's, that's all they are. Um, they also don't want ICE in their courthouses, which, of course, why should they be in the courthouses uh, as witnesses and as victims? ICE shouldn't be there. Uh, so the majority of new family immigration court cases are in New York, Miami, and San Francisco, Houston, and New Orleans. Now, Houston is not a sanctuary city that I'm aware of. Well, maybe it is a little bit. New Orleans... Maybe Atlanta itself. I'm not going to say Atlanta's a sanctuary city. L.A., yeah. Memphis, no. Chicago, yeah. Baltimore, yeah. So looking at these numbers is actually stunning that the majority of these cases um, are are there. Now, this is from the track folks at Syracuse University. They are just amazing. Uh, the, yeah, the data, you know, this is just hashtag facts. Um, so despite the concern about the number of families arriving at the border seeking asylum, Families continue to remain a minor proportion of new cases arriving at the immigration courts each month. For example, during March 2019, 35,500 new cases were recorded as new filings in the court records. Of these, fewer than 3,300 families were among them. The families involved a total of 6,500 family members, or just 18% of new cases. So while family cases are a minor component of the workload, the court's backlog continues to climb. At the end of March, there's 869,000 cases on its active docket, without counting the hundreds of thousands of pending cases that have not been recalendered. This is an increase of 326,000 pending cases on the docket in the 26 months that Trump became president, or an increase of 60%. Uh, so... Uh, the busing, so you know, they're, I'm gonna. So he couldn't. He wouldn't bus them to the uh, detention centers. We talked about just that. But he wants to bus them to sanctuary cities. He tweeted, uh, "We are indeed, as reported, giving strong considerations to placing illegal immigrants in sanctuary cities only." Well, that's they're already going there on their own. Uh, they obviously don't stay on the border communities. They all, a lot of them have family in the United States. They have people here in the United States. Um, there are 32 courts with at least 100 new family cases in the court records. These courts are located in 24 different states. Over half the cases tagged by DHS family cases in September 2018 are before courts in sanctuary cities. 
Among the top 10 courts where family cases are located, six are usually classified as those jurisdictions. New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, which already have large undocumented populations. Uh, so it's interesting to see the, the, the data on this. Um, and I, I love this particular headline in this new report, data lacking on why immigration courts are not overwhelmed with family cases. Um, so it appears that the government itself does not actually know what happens to those that arrest at the border. It admits it lacks the ability to reliably follow cases when they pass from one agency of DHS to another, CDP to ICE to CIS, or to connect those cases when jurisdiction is passed to the DOJ, where the immigration courts are located. Uh, this appears to parallel the difficulties the government has had in reuniting children separated from parents. Um, do you have any doubt that a competent administrator could make this happen? Um, it, it is still stunning to me uh, that um, they can't track these cases, that they can't determine um, what is actually going on. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, here in Georgia, uh, we have uh, 25, 000, almost 25,000 pending cases in immigration court. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had 12,000. Um, and when you look at the cities where these people live, the majority of them live in uh, what we would call Gwinnett County, uh, large chunks of them live in Gwinnett County. Uh, the court is in downtown Atlanta. Um, and we see that the number of cases filed in the last 60 days, um, again, continue to focus. A lot of people in Lumpkin, of course, uh, but they are uh, truly um, uh, incompetent in how they enforce immigration law. They, they continue to believe that the maximum enforcement under the law, the most punishment you can mean out, the meanest you can give, not exercising prosecutorial discretion, not agreeing to cases, not agreeing to docket cases on a dead docket that don't need to be enforced, not even using the status docket that they're supposed to be using, by doing all this stuff, somehow, they're going to end illegal immigration. And they're not. Any listener to this show knows they're not going to end illegal immigration by enforcing the law to its fullest extent. Because one, we don't have the resources to force our law to the fullest extent. And two, it's not the wisest course of action. If you could instead begin the process of legalization for those who are long-term residents in the United States and then focus on the remaining few that are out there, and if you did have a, a proper entry-exit system, much like other countries do, that control when people come and go from their air and sea ports of entry, not necessarily from their land ports of entry, then you would be able to see how the system works. You'd be able to, to really bring a crackdown on a lot of visa overstays and illegal immigration. But because the system is currently run by people, who have a vested interest in continuing the illegal immigration problem, despite their rhetoric to the contrary, pay attention to the private prisons, um, you are literally not going to see a solution to this in our lifetimes. Uh, I was in D.C. Uh, a couple weeks ago talking to our friends in Congress about this, and there is a sense of hopelessness that pervades our ability to fix this issue, a sense of you know, why do we even try anymore? We have the same conversation with the same people every year, but we can't get a, we can't get anything passed because we can't get a supermajority of people to agree to it. Uh, and 
if we can't get a supermajority to agree to it, we're never going to see it on the House, on the Senate floor or the House, uh, getting a, a, a majority able to override a presidential veto. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough, tough sell this week. It's a tough time this week uh, as, we, as we determine uh, how we're going to fix this issue, how we're going to be able to come to terms with uh, uh, the process itself uh, and uh, uh, overall fix our immigration system. Well, it's been a great week. Uh, you guys uh, have a great week till next week. We'll be back next week on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio with more fun immigration facts. And who knows, maybe a quick decision on the census question from the U.S. Supreme Court. Until next week, this is your host, Chuck Cook of the Immigration Hour.